Hi, I'm Arlen Walker, and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland, and today I've got another episode of the podcast for you guys, which is a little bit of a funny thing, because today is a Monday, and I'm going to do a podcast episode for today, although it's not going to come out at 11 a.m. like I like my podcast episodes to normally come out at, and it's instead going to come out at probably closer to noon or 1 um, but then I'm going to do a YouTube video tomorrow. And normally I do YouTube on Monday podcast on Tuesday, but, um, I'm, you know, tinkering around with that basically because of the real life stuff that was going on this weekend for me, which is to say that, um, I was busy taking care of my parents' dog this weekend, um, dog sitting for them while they were out camping and therefore wasn't working on some of the stuff that I otherwise could have been working on, which was actually really good. I, I was talking with a friend about how I think that some kind of enforced downtime away from my computer, away from all of my kind of day job stuff, as well as away from some of my kind of, you know, Discord and Pelham's Wasteland stuff was was actually good for me in a lot of ways to have kind of a a forced break from that and spend some time on other things, especially uh, reading, um, that that was really good. So anyway, um, but I digress. The, the point of all of that is just to say that, yeah, I've got an episode of the podcast today, and we're going to talk about the concept of rules as written or games as written um, today and sort of two sides of it, if that makes sense, which is to say that um, the title in praise of games as written has a sort of double meaning, which is to say that one meaning has to do with the idea of the value of experience a game at experiencing a game as it was written as opposed to in a sort of modified version, especially a heavily modified version. And then the other side has to do with the idea of praising games and then kind of talking about what makes for like a really good RPG in relation to kind of what the sort of, you know, text of the rules are versus what sort of other things you might do within the sort of space provided by the rules, for lack of a better term. Right, that there's, I think there's an interesting thing there that is sort of um, worth discussing. That talking essentially in some ways about um, how at least I and perhaps even we think about kind of games in general and evaluating games based on kind of you know what what they do and and you know what sort of games work really well for us and what don't and all of that sort of stuff so anyway that's sort of my idea right now i think what we're going to start with is the 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 former essentially talk about um, what i see as the value associated with experiencing a game in a way that is uh, intentionally hewing closer to the um, specifics of the game as written. And then we're going to start talking about kind of uh, valuing games or grading games or however you want to, to put it. Um, and the, the kind of 
some discussion around that. So anyway, I thought this would be kind of an interesting thing to talk about, um, sort of inspired by a couple of things that I watched and listened to over the weekend. Um, not necessarily any one specific thing, but just kind of in general, a couple of the things that I was, uh, you know, hanging out with uh, on my phone and on my tablet while I was hanging out with Clover the puppy. Um, or who's not really a puppy. She's a full grown dog. She's a little over four, but I always call her Clover the puppy. So anyway, um, yeah, so let's get into it. All right. So the first thing I sort of wanted to talk about has to do with what I see as the value of playing a game as written, or I suppose a better way to put it might be attempting to engage with the game as written. Uh, and I think that um, part of the point is that I don't necessarily think that you need to like sit and play, you know, a hundred session campaign with a set of rules as written in order to be able to judge the game. But I do think there is a value in approaching the game from the perspective that the rules contained within the game's rule book are um, an aid in having fun rather than a detriment to it is I suppose the way to put it. Um, and in particular, I think that one of the things that happens and and one kind of obvious element of this has to do with like playtesting with regard to house ruling which is to say that um depending on the particular game i think there is a strong case to be made that a lot of the games people are likely to buy as a rule book not necessarily all of them but many of them are likely to have spent more time in play testing these specific rules as written then are likely to have kind of play testing these specific um, house rules that you might end up playing with and i think this is an important point because it gets to the idea of the game as a complete system where there are different pieces or different factors that are um going to influence each other. So like, um, I think there are a number of ways to um, get at this kind of concept. But one of them has to do with, for instance, um, I'll, I will use an example of choosing to take penalties to attack in order for specific bonuses while also having um, specific rules that have things like automatic hits. So for example, I was playing in a AD&D second edition campaign for a long time where one of the core rules that we had in play was that a natural 20 is always a hit. It's not a critical hit. We didn't play with any type of like extra damage for a nat 20 or anything like that, but that any character who rolls a nat 20 hits the thing that they were trying to hit. 
We also had a number of rules with regard to taking kind of penalties to your attack roll for specific bonuses. So for instance, that you could, so one of them was firing into melee that you could um, normally you had a chance, uh, an attacker using a ranged weapon targeting a character, an enemy character that was in melee contact with a friendly character had a chance of hitting said friendly character on a low roll of their um, attack roll, essentially. Now, the thing about this is that, so the, the idea being that you could choose to take, I don't remember what it was, a minus three or a minus four to your attack roll to not have a chance of hitting the enemy, um, not have a chance of hitting a friendly on a bad roll, basically. And the point about this is that that makes sense. Those two sort of make sense separately, but when combined, they can create a really odd thing where, for instance, if the penalty does not offset the like difficulty of the, the if, if essentially the cost doesn't offset the um, benefit in certain situations, there's no reason not to do it. So for example, my heavily armored dwarf would be in situations where enemy archers needed basically a 19 or a 20 to hit his armor class. And so they would all basically in melee combat just take the, the essentially penalty and be down to only hitting on a 20 instead of hitting on a 19 or 20. The point being that they essentially weren't suffering as large a penalty for um, not hitting their, not having the potential of hitting their allies in combat as they were in under kind of normal circumstances. Like if they had been targeting the wizard who had a much worse armor class, that it might have made sense for them to be willing to potentially hit their allies in exchange for a much higher rate of hitting um, the, the particular wizard that they're shooting at. So that is sort of a, an obvious, that's sort of an example. And I think that gets into sort of some of the explicit rules. Because for instance, there were also in that game rules for like targeting specific uh, body parts, essentially called shots. And part of the idea being that a called shot had essentially specific effects based on a hit um, that the the character hit would have to basically make a, a save in order to not have like a, a specific wound, a, you know, a, a specific penalty based on the fact that they were hit by um, the attacker in the specific place, which is kind of an odd, I don't know, it's one of those things that I think is sort of an odd thing to add into a D&D game where you don't have hit locations normally because you get into, well, so is it like I only hit him in the arm if I'm aiming for the arm. I don't have a chance of ever hitting him in the arm. But anyway, the, what I'm getting at is that this was balanced by penalties. But if you have, you hit automatically on a 20, right? For example, if those archers had been really cunning, what they would have done is just all aimed for headshots and taken taken the penalty for not hitting their buddies and aim for headshots against my character because you can't get because in the system the the worst you could get is a one out of 20 chance of hitting the target 
And one of the big points there is that a one out of 20 chance of hitting the target ends up being a matter of large numbers, which is to say that one player character making two attacks in a round where they need a 20 to hit an enemy is not getting a big benefit, but eight archers who are firing two shots every round, who are therefore making 16 attack rolls every round, they're going to come up with 20s regularly enough to make that make some sense. And, and this gets into sort of my point about house rules and rules as written and all of that sort of stuff that there's, I think, the idea of the you can, you know, you always have a chance of hitting on a 20 was basically to get away from the sort of inherent weirdness of situations where you like couldn't possibly hit an enemy with a weapon because your character isn't high enough level, right? That like your your Thacko isn't good enough that even on a 20, you couldn't possibly hit the enemy that you're aiming at. Um but that the result introduces a whole kind of different set of weirdness. And I think this is something where I don't necessarily think that all house rules are like this, but I think it is worth considering, especially in as much as the games have a mathematical component, that the mathematical components, depending on the particular game, may have some level of... Um, balancing or um, may allow for I'm trying to think of the right way to put what I'm trying to describe but that essentially what I'm getting at has to do with unforeseen consequences um, another version of this has to do with random encounters and reaction roles which is to say that I think one of the things that defines a lot of old school games is not just the idea of like random encounter tables, but that you also have like reaction roles added to that because that becomes a factor in the process of engaging with these random encounters, which is to say that if you just do like, you know, you have a, you know, whatever the rate of random encounters is in a particular game, sometimes it's fairly significant, right? You, definitely have games where you end up with a random encounter, basically like, you know, one or two a day sometimes. Um, if you're doing like a one on a 1d6 rolled every hour or something, you're going to get a lot of random encounters. But part of the idea to me is that the random encounters are not necessarily all combat encounters, especially if you have random encounters that are that often that you also, there's a sort of um, balance to the system that comes from using reaction rolls and morale rolls alongside those random encounters, because it means that, you know, that basically, even though maybe the players have to, the player characters have to fight a significant number, or there are a significant number of enemies that they would otherwise have to fight over the course of overland travel, they don't actually have to kill that many of them, because they can, you know, kill the first, you know, pop the leader with a quick bow shot and be able to, you know, force the rest of the monsters to make a morale check, or they can, you know, try to negotiate with them or things like that. And I think that gets into the sort of um, unforeseen consequences 
um, games, especially the kind of systematized elements, right? The way that all of these kind of different parts end up working together in play. And I think there is a real value in, um, I suppose the way I would describe it better is I think there's a real value in being willing to engage in good faith with the system as written without necessarily throwing out things um, just because they seem bad, especially if you're unwilling to introduce them back in when it seems like the, the reasons for those balancing elements become apparent. Right. And this is, I think, a, a kind of interesting point because I don't think that necessarily a game master should feel or anybody should feel like so completely beholden to the game rules that they feel like they can't make any changes to it. Um, but I do think that at times there are um, fairly significant kind of long reaching changes that become come about as a result of the what seems like relatively minor changes to the game and that having played in a number of these games, I think one of the other factors that's important is not just the unintended consequences, but also it has to do with the idea of the sort of reasons for playing a specific game. And I think one of the things that um, comes to my mind has to do with the idea of playing a specific rule set in order to have a specific experience at the table. And I think one of the things that can happen with house rules is that you end up um, diluting the particular experience at the table that the original game system was sort of built around achieving in some ways. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it I think raises a lot of questions. And one of the obvious questions that I see come up a lot has to do with, you know, when somebody is playing a like super house ruled version of X game that takes from a bunch of different games. And it's like, well, but why not play, you know, this other game that already does all of that, right? Why do you feel the need to have it be kind of your Frankenstein's monster essentially. I think that's kind of an interesting, I think that's sort of an important point of analysis of games as systems. And, and in particular, I think that it can feel, um, I don't know, I think there is a way in which um, trying to think of how to specifically kind of articulate the point that I'm trying to make. But basically what I'm getting at is I think there is a real value in at least attempting to engage with the rules as they are written in the book, especially with regard to the idea. It seems to me that one of the sort of core ideas about the games, about these games that we play, is the idea that engaging with the rules increases fun. Um, and that is to say that the sort of raison d'etat for the game to have rules is to say that everybody at the table has more fun when there are rules versus when there aren't rules, right? That we use the rules as a method of adjudicating things, but that they have an important effect that, you know, if everybody at the table was going to have more fun without the rules, 
why are we playing with these rules? And that if we accept that we are playing with these specific rules so as to increase the kind of total fun at the table, then it should, seems to me that there is an element of, you know, the value in kind of trusting the designer to have designed a game that does that, that, that a designer to have kind of put the thought into their system in a way that increases fun at the table, which is not to say that every game um, or any game is perfect, but I think that, I don't know, having played a number of games now with a number of different game masters, I think one of the things that I have come to recognize is that often kind of, in my opinion, sort of close analysis of a game will lend itself to the value of playing with these specific rules that are laid out um, and not just kind of throwing things out because perhaps they don't seem like the sort of thing that you want to use or you don't like them or anything like that, I guess, is sort of what I am getting at. Um, that I think there is a, I think that in as much as there is a, I think it's kind of a sort of complicated, not contradictory things, but things that sort of at first glance seem to be contradictory, which is to say that I think there is an inherent value in, um, customizing a game to fit the table alongside an inherent value of approaching the game as written in good faith and attempting to use the material that has been kind of written into the book as it has been written and all of that sort of stuff. And that I don't think those two, I think those two kind of at first glance seem to you know, it seems obvious that, oh, well, if you're customizing for the table, then you're not running the game as written. But I think there's also a meaningful way in which kind of engaging with the rules as written in good faith is not the same as um, not being able to make changes to the game. It more has to do with kind of attempting to... Um, treat the work of the game designer as a meaningful improvement to the kind of gameless interaction, if that makes sense. I don't know. I'm, I'm getting way off target. And in some ways, I think that this wasn't a great section of the podcast. I, I don't think I did a very good job of getting across what my sort of points were in this section, but hopefully I'll do better in the next section where I talk about kind of talking about games and rules as written. All right. Um, I don't think that last section was very good in a lot of ways. I think that it, um, I didn't do a great job of kind of conveying what my uh, thoughts were on the subject. Um, but I'm going to leave it in basically um, in the hope that I can uh, come back to it sometime later by virtue of having it there and that, you know, maybe somebody will have something kind of interesting to say on the subject that will help me to have a better way to, to more clearly um, convey my uh, thoughts on the subject of playing games as written. 
Um, so the, the kind of second part that I wanted to get into was a sort of discussion about evaluating games essentially and and the idea of um you know differentiating between you know what makes for like a good game and a not as good game um and i think there's there's a sort of fair bit of preliminary stuff that i want to talk about on the subject so i'm gonna go through that for a little while but the, the first thing has to do with the difference between the game as text in a rule book versus the game as something that happens at the table. Um, and I think this is an important distinction to make for a couple of reasons, but one of the big reasons has to do with the idea that the game as something that happens at the table is much less accessible to anybody else, essentially. And, and the argument being that, you know, what happens at the table, I mean, you can make the case that in a streamed game, you can watch what's happening at the table. Although I think that even a streamed game in a lot of ways, or a, an actual player recorded game, some version of an RPG session where, you know, people can kind of watch what happens, I think has some level of inaccessibility with regard to the kind of experience at the table for the players and the GM for a number, <coughs> a number of reasons. Um, one of the big ones being the different style of investment when it comes to the player at the table versus the viewer watching at their computer or on their tablet or whatever. Um, but what I'm getting at has to do with the, the difference between these things. And um, I think this gets into an important distinction for evaluating games that it seems to me that if what you can buy is a rule book, that the evaluation of the game should essentially reflect what the game in the rule book is as opposed to what the game at the table is if there are significant differences between those and i don't mean that you know if there is a, a game that you know the math seems unintuitive but at in play it seems fine that that should penalize the game what i mean is that if there is a game and you know you're playing a fairly house ruled version of a game that is sort of started from a rule book that i think that evaluating that game part of it is that it is more useful but also part of it is that it is fundamentally more um uh reasonable i guess to evaluate the game on the basis of the game as written as opposed to evaluating the game on the basis of the game as kind of tempered with by anybody at the table and that seems like an important distinction to me especially when you start talking about some of these games and the other thing has to do with a sort of thought about 
the sort of value, the purpose of games. Um, and that is, so the general assumption, certainly that what I am going to operate on is the idea that games are basically tools for having fun, right? The idea being that the game is about doing something that is fun and therefore evaluating a game is essentially based on how much fun is the game to play but the experience of fun at the table is different than how much fun does the game add is a sort of think sort of what i'm getting at which is to say that i think um so there's a a reviewer that i used to watch for video games um that i don't watch very much anymore this guy named yahtzee who did a series called zero punctuation um that is probably still going but i haven't watched any of it in a long time um but he at one point talked uh in uh i don't remember if it was in an actual zero punctuation or if it was in a kind of you know text article afterwards where he talked about his kind of thoughts about evaluating games and in particular why he evaluated multiplayer co-op multiplayer games a little differently and that was basically his argument was that hanging out and doing things with your friends is inherently fun and so what you should be measuring in a situation where you are like playing a co-op multiplayer game is not how much fun are you having but how much fun is the game adding and i think this is a sort of good point that you're you're sort of talking about like opportunity cost in in economic terms in some ways right not just are you having fun playing this game but are you having more fun playing this game than you could be using the time and the resources that you have in any number of other ways, right? So for RPGs, this seems like an obvious thing where, okay, we've got the group together. Are we going to have more fun playing game X than game Y? And I think that is an important distinction because in my opinion, there's a sort of segment of game reviewing and game discussion that really gets attached to this sort of um, absolute element of fun and not towards the comparative element of fun, if that makes sense. And I'm going to call out um, one of my friends here specifically, which is to say that um, Jason Connerly and I were talking about a, um, a game company that he has been collecting a lot of their games called Leading Edge Games. And they've made a number of games, including like Phoenix Command is one of them and things like that. And apparently their games are very, very complicated. And I kind of did some searching and ended up finding a um, basically a forum discussion that was about this company. And the specific post was basically about how for all the talk of realism in the game, there's a lot of stuff that is not super realistic and there were kind of a couple of pieces to this um so one of it was like the discussion of okay so you don't have hit points but you also don't have like any way to model like a wound becoming infected right and that that's just you know that seems kind of silly right that's not really you you've got sort of 60 percent realism instead of 30 percent, which is better but it's still not 
you know, 100% realism or even 90%, right? That's sort of the argument being made. Or the way that, like, for instance, burst fire didn't have any rules for shot grouping. So you could, you know, hit somebody. Basically, every hit was a totally random result for the hits tables and the pers- and that there's a lot of other kind of weirdness to the hits tables. So, like, if you hit somebody in the thigh, you can't actually like sever their femoral artery so there's you know basically like you know there's whole kind of sections of the body where you're just you know not in nearly as much danger if you get hit there and there's kind of a weirdness that goes on there because it's like okay but like you know that's a a real factor when you talk about like you know hit locations is not just you know where you hit them but what's kind of in the path of the bullet and that sure you know there are sections of the body where there's less critical stuff but you know there's things there but then i think the biggest the biggest point for me had to do with the discussion at the end about the mathematics that there's all of these kind of fiddly modifiers that are used to simulate things but at the core your kind of ability to hit things when shooting comes from basically a 3d6 attribute role, which is to say that a character with a higher attribute has a better chance of hitting things when they shoot at them. And that essentially they were making the case that this is um, similar to a problem of uh, scientific accuracy, right? The significant digits, Um, the idea being so in when you're talking about like scientific research right the idea being that your um final result only has as many is only as accurate as the least accurate piece of information that you put into the formula to get it right so that for instance if you have a a you know piece of information with five significant digits versus a piece of information with three significant digits and then you use those two as the sort of core of your formula that your final result even though you put in a piece of data with five significant digits the final result is only three significant digits um that's basically the the argument um which the concept with regard to this is that there's all of these kind of minor fiddly modifiers but the biggest factor is still fairly um, broad grained, right? That, you know, your kind of minor modifiers just aren't ever going to be based on kind of the, the sort of listed modifiers are unlikely to be as significant as the major modifiers that come from things like these attribute roles. And that therefore you're kind of doing all this work that doesn't, really make nearly as much difference on the kind of fiction of the game, essentially. Anyway, and Jason basically replied, well, but, you know, if you look at the, um, if you look at the uh, forum thread where this discussion is happening, you can see that there are plenty of people who had lots of fun playing this game. And I I'm calling out Jason specifically because I think that he can handle me calling him out. Um, I don't think he's going to get too upset by me calling him out. But what I'm basically making the case is that, sure, lots of people may have had fun with that game, but that is different than the game being good because it creates fun, right? People who have fond memories of a game is different than the game's design being well-suited to creating fun, if that makes sense. Um, Which is to say that I think 
I think this, I think what Jason sort of unwittingly um, alluded to was an argument that actually gets made fairly regularly with regard to games. The, well, we're having, you know, our group is having fun with X game. So it's, you know, so the game isn't, you know, broken or damaged or there's nothing wrong with the math or anything like that. And my point is sort of like, okay, sure. The game, you may still be having fun playing the game, but how much of that fun comes from the game and what's the sort of relationship between how much fun you're having with this game versus how much you might have with X other game, because that sort of, to me, what's at stake is not the kind of absolute, are you having fun playing or not, but are you having more fun playing this particular game than this other particular game? And we're getting way away from the idea of sort of games as written, but I'm, I'm going to sort of come back to that, which is to say that I think this gets into a, a similar, that I think that's a similar distinction as the distinction between kind of having fun playing a house ruled version of the game and having fun playing the game as written, which is to say that the value of the game, in my opinion, comes from the sort of what we might describe as the increase of fun, right? The, the difference in fun that you're having based on engaging with that as opposed to engaging with something else. But obviously, a lot of the fun comes from all sorts of other things, right? And this is not, I'm hardly the first person to say this in the context of RPGs. I mean, in Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering, he talks about his opinion is that system accounts for maybe 30% of the fun in any given session, that a lot of it comes from all these other things. And I think that that's fairly true. I think that that number is different for different people, but that that's a pretty good estimate for most people, that most people, their fun is not, that, that the system is not causing kind of the majority of whether or not they are having fun. But that also doesn't, to me, that doesn't mean that you should excuse systems that are not doing as good a job of creating fun as other systems that are doing a good job at creating fun, which is to say that I think, again, I think this gets back to a sort of common kind of defense of games with issues, which comes down to basically, well, we had fun playing it. And my point is sort of, well, but you know, how much of you having fun playing it has to do with the game itself. Now, I do think that there's a case to be made that there are games that you can have fun with partly because of sort of the weird quirks and flaws, right? I've, I think it was on um, one of my call-ins can't remember exactly where I said it, but the idea of loving a game for its flaws as much as loving it for its successes and, you know, appreciating or caring about a sort of uh, flawed but grand attempt at something compared to a much more polished but more sort of reasonable attempt. And for me, that's sort of like the Riddle of Steel that I really enjoy a lot of the stuff about the Riddle of Steel while also kind of feeling like there's some underlying um, mathematical and system issues inherent in that particular system, which I think is sort of the, that's sort of what I am getting at is having to do with the sort of relationship between 
you know, like caring about something and its quality alongside the ideas about like a game creating fun. And in particular, the way that the game as written creates fun versus the way that the game as you have kind of perhaps constructed it for a particular purpose um, causes fun. And I think this also gets into a discussion that I think is sort of worth getting into about more of toolkit games and um, not just does the game sort of a, a um, one of the things that I think is sometimes not uh, responded to effectively by, for instance, the people who say like, you know, I'm going to pick on GURPS, but the people who say like, well, GURPS can handle X thing and you go, okay, but how much work does it take to get it to handle that thing? And how well does it actually handle that thing? Which is to say that I think that, for instance, GURPS can definitely handle all sorts of different settings, right? And there's tons of material across all these books. I think GURPS does not handle certain styles of play nearly as well, which is to say that um, when you get down to it, in my opinion, there are as with almost any generic system, there are certain kind of um, foundational assumptions that are inherent to that particular gaming system that are going to be a factor in all of these different kind of expressions of that generic system, right? So for instance, I think that, you know, the idea being that, you know, you could run the same setting with GURPS and Savage Worlds and Fate and, you know, maybe... I'm trying to think of some other examples, but lots of different systems that could handle a lot of different things. Cortex Prime as another example, right? But you're going to have a different feel of the game based on the sort of underlying assumptions of the system, even if the setting is the same, right? Which is to say that that's part of where, like, that for me, that's sort of the rubber hits the road element that that's where the math comes in right that for me a lot of the feel of the system has to do with the math behind the system and that therefore um you know you you know when you have a game that uses like 3d6 roll under skills versus a game that uses like you know build a dice pool and roll them all roll them all and use the highest results versus a game that uses um different size dice for different things right you end up with a different feel in play even though you're sort of still able to handle a setting with certain concepts, right? That that you can definitely, right? You can run a Conan style GURPS game, but it will feel different than a Conan 2D20 Conan game, right? Is sort of what I'm getting at. And that this is, I think, something that some of the people who get very, very into specific generic systems sometimes don't do a very good job of recognizing is not just can it handle it, but will it do a better job than X other thing? And how much work is it going to take to get it there? And especially with some of the systems, I think those are important questions when you are talking about a um, more complicated system. And I'm going to pick on GURPS a little more to say that I think that's one of the big reasons why people get uh, annoyed at the sort of GURPS evangelists is because they say, okay, yes, you can do it in GURPS, but it's not going to handle it any better than X other system that is 
designed just for this thing. And I'm going to have to do as the game master, a whole bunch of work to essentially use the pieces of groups that will create the specific kind of experience that I'm looking for. Right. And that I think is an important discussion too, because that gets into the idea of games as written where the game is maybe not quite as um, specific about what you do, right? That, you know, it's, it's, I think, relatively easy to evaluate certain games as written if it's like, okay, you know, here's kind of how the game works. But it, when you have games with like lots of optional rules, that's where I think a lot of some, uh, sometimes things break down is to say, okay, well, then I think part of what needs to be discussed is basically... Um, you know, how much do the optional rules add? How much work is it to balance out these optional rules? All of that sort of stuff. But that is still, I think, sort of within the purview of game as written in some ways. And I think it's it's one of those things that I sort of go back and forth on the specifics, which is to say that, like, for instance, in games with lots of splat books, how much of kind of rules in the splat books counts as part of game as written. Um, and that there's a sort of question there, especially depending on like the total number of splat books, it seems to me where, um, you know, if you have a game with like three splat books, that to me is different than a game with like 10 or 15 where plenty of people aren't going to have all those splat books and therefore aren't going to be using all of those different rules and all those things. And anyway, basically what I'm getting at is that I think that there is a fair bit of sort of, um, discussion around gaming that comes from what I think is a good place that ends up focusing on I had fun playing this game and not did the game add to the fun of the experience, um, which is not to say that, I, I mean, it is still very much a, a subjective thing, but I think there are um, elements that we can identify where even though the experience of the game is subjective, there are also elements where like expertise and um, a sort of informed opinion versus an uninformed one is a meaningful difference, right? So, you know, that and that gets back for me, a lot of that has to do often with like the math of a game, right? That, you know, okay, if this is a game where you're supposed to be able to do sort of X and Y, but your odds of actually succeeding at X and Y are incredibly low, then you get into the kind of, well, does the game actually work the way it is sort of supposed to in some ways, um, which is sort of a complicated thing because I also very much believe in the idea of sort of unintended consequences are not always bad, which is to say that I think there are plenty of, kind of certainly in RPGs, there are plenty of cases where the sort of whole of the game as written ends up lending itself to something a little different than perhaps what the designer had kind of originally intended when setting up to design the project, but that that is actually to the game's benefit in some ways. In fact, I think that is um, really, in my opinion, that's really central to the success of Dungeons and Dragons as a franchise that I don't think that 
Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson actually sort of intended it to go the way it did in a lot of ways. And they kind of did a couple of things that ended up when you put them all together being um, sort of clever enough to drive the game onward, if that makes sense. That uh, to me, that's a sort of major element of the game. Um, anyway, but I'm I'm totally rambling at this point. Basically, what I wanted to say is that um, I don't know. I I think this gets into. Uh, I don't necessarily want to criticize anybody, but I do think that there are times when, for instance, like a game gets praised for an experience of play that isn't really within like the rules as written, right? And so, you know, like for instance, if you are playing, you know, X game with a whole bunch of house rules and then end up it's able to kind of handle something very different that that to me is kind of a like there is a valuable point about the sort of flexibility of the core system to be able to handle something like that without the math completely breaking down but there is also an important kind of um, tempering of that discussion that is to say okay well if that's not what's in the game's rules it doesn't really make sense to praise the game's design for those elements that are there, if that makes sense. Um, so anyway, I don't know. It's kind of a long and rambling discussion, but I think it's, for me, the, the sort of purpose of this was basically to try to speak to um, what I see as sort of like important factors in evaluating games as much as anything so that perhaps I can do a better job in the future of evaluating games that you know be able to say okay well this particular game i you know i did have fun playing this game but it wasn't really you know based on the game it was based on you know having fun hanging out with my friends versus this particular game maybe i did not have a lot of fun in this session but i don't think that was the game's fault i think that was because you know i had a rough day at work and hadn't eaten dinner and so i was grumpy or things like that right and i think that is a an important factor when kind of talking about these games. All right. Well, I don't know that I did a great job on the second section either. I think there's some kind of pieces in there that are kind of what I wanted to say, but that I don't know that I did a great job of kind of conveying some of the more specific elements, especially once you get into kind of part of my point has to do not just with kind of evaluating, but also with evaluating as a meaningful part of the design process, if that makes sense, that, you know, the idea being that it's not just about like, you know, proving that my game is better, my favorite game is better than your favorite game or the other way around, but about like saying, okay, well, we can kind of analyze how this, um, essentially how the kind of elements of the design of the game are uh, useful in the game kind of creating a particular experience and especially in the way of, you know, once you move from kind of like one specific game to sort of, you know, designing your own game or evaluating other games or things like that, right, that the, you know, 
like one of the big things for me has to do with sort of the relationship between um, how much like work and mathematical complexity goes into a specific game element and how much kind of control there is over it, if that makes sense, which is to say, um, as you guys may remember, part of my sort of theory about RPGs is that RPGs to me, what is sort of central to the nature of kind of RPGing has to do with making players making meaningful decisions as their character right? That when you have meaningful decisions that the players are making, that's what RPG means. That it's not about like talking in a specific voice or anything like that, that you can have, you know, basically anytime there's a meaningful decision being made by a player that is reflecting sort of the, who the character that they're playing is and all that sort of stuff that has to do with sort of RPG role-playing as a concept in general and that um what that means for me is that for instance that's one of i to pick on another game um harn master is one of those games that we played for a while and i um i think there's a lot of actually kind of good stuff sort of buried in harn master and i think that a number of the other pieces work better but specifically in combat the process involves very, very few decisions being made by the characters, but a lot, or the players, but a lot of decisions being essentially told by the dice. So for instance, when you, if you are deciding you're definitely going to fight and there's not a lot of like interesting trade-offs. So like you don't really get an advantage for like trying to hunker down and specifically defend yourself versus fighting in most situations, things like that. So you're not really making the like, okay, well, do I, you know, kind of, you know, hunker down behind my shield to try to protect myself a little better this round versus kind of, you know, swinging, putting more energy into swinging and less about defending myself, all of that sort of stuff. And then when you actually choose to like attack somebody in melee, it's basically, do you attack them normally, attack them low or attack them high? That's what the aiming element involves. And it basically just gives you different, um, hit location charts, um, which is sort of a decision if you have like a character who, you know, like doesn't, maybe they have, you know, their upper body armored, but not their lower body, then yeah, it makes sense to, you know, try to attack them low versus attacking them high. Um, but there isn't really very much like involved in terms of like the player making kind of decisions to say which is to say that basically you just say i attack and then roll a bunch of dice on a bunch of charts to figure out kind of how effective your particular attack was it's very kind of hands-off and i think that um it arguably is about the same amount of hands-off as like most versions of kind of old school DD melee combat but old school DD melee combat has the advantage of being quite a bit faster basically that you know yes it's about as hands-off and yes it has about the same number of decisions but the total amount of kind of time spent rolling and consulting charts in harn master is a fair bit longer because you're going through all of the different kind of pieces um especially if you're not as familiar with the system as we were not quite as familiar, which I think is a, a kind of interesting place to talk about kind of 
the value of games, right? What, what do you do with a complex game that you can learn and can run quickly, but that takes a lot of effort to do that, right? And I think that's also something that sometimes gets... Uh, not necessarily um well basically that i think some people who for instance have certain complex systems that they quite like will say things like okay well you know you can totally learn this system and get it going just as fast as insert other system other comparable system here and it's like okay well but you know that's work to learning is it is it worth the, the learning process to get that going, I think is sort of the, you know, unspoken question there, which is to say, you know, is, is the process of, you know, kind of learning that system and internalizing it and getting it going quickly, even if you can, I, to be honest, I think that most complicated systems, you actually, you know, yes, you can get complicated system that you are, you know, really proficient at going just as fast as less complicated system that you're not as proficient at. But I think that that comparison often ignores the way that proficiency with the non-complicated system will be a factor too, which is to say that if, if for instance, you were playing Harn Master versus playing BX and it took you, you know, 10 sessions to get really good at getting the Harn Master combat going quickly, would the Harn Master combat at session 10 be as fast as the combat in bx at session one or faster maybe would the hard master combat at session 10 be as fast or faster than the bx combat after as many sessions of kind of developing proficiency seems unlikely to me um but that's a sort of another issue in some ways um and i think that gets into to me sort of ideas about like elegance i guess which is to say that the value of kind of complexity for a purpose versus complexity that is um just sort of more dice rolling right especially when you have like and that goes into right if if to me the purpose has to do with having fun and having the players make meaningful decisions as their characters then, you know, complexity that doesn't add more meaningful decisions doesn't really do that, but complexity that adds those meaningful decisions kind of does that. And so that's me sort of trying to explain my particular kind of point of view and biases and all that. But anyway, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that this episode was quite as good as I'd hoped it would be. Um, I feel like there's still some kind of pieces missing to the discussion in a lot of ways and that I could, you know, benefit from another another pass in some ways. But we'll see. I don't know. I may go back, come back to this idea. I guess it may depend on people calling in about it and all of that sort of stuff. But I think I'm done for today. I think this is going to be the outro for today. Um, I have got a number of call-ins, and I need to respond to them. I don't know if that's going to be next episode or the one after, but I want to do it soon um, so that they don't kind of pile up too much. Um, and in particular, I want to kind of, uh, I don't know. I want to do my sort of episode talking a little bit about sort of thoughts on religion and gaming that I've talked about doing for a while. Um, but I sort of keep having kind of 
podcaster's block on that one. Um, and then I also want to do the sort of call-in discussion. And then I also, you know, want to be able to just kind of, you know, have fun doing random stuff because I feel like it sort of like this episode. So who knows what's going to come out? I don't know. But anyway, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Um, hope everybody is doing well, staying safe, staying healthy, and having lots of fun gaming. I've been Arlen Walker. I've been live from Helms Wasteland, and I will see you next time. Take care, everybody. <laughs>